Right. I, I want to start by dealing with a very, very sensitive topic. If you're on social media, you already know what's coming. If you're not on social media, then you might be surprised. But I believe that it's important that the church speaks, speaks loudly and clearly. Not just it's, it's, The church needs to have a voice for the issues of God and against the things that God speaks against. So we need to have... We don't want to just preach against everything, but we also just want, don't want to preach for anything and, and everything and just not have a clear voice about what God stands against. So we're really doing a little bit of both tonight. Not, it, it can be challenging sometimes to speak loudly and clearly about things that go against society's norms. See, so often the church is counter cultural, meaning we are not like the rest of culture. And if you ever get to the place where you feel like the church is right with the culture, either the whole world's in revival or the church is backslid. Okay? And so we're, we're going to look at this topic tonight because the world's not embarrassed to talk about it all. We in the church are sometimes afraid to touch it with a 10-foot pole, like we don't even want to say the word. Um, but here's what we're going to talk about. Sex, relationships, and family. Oh, my goodness. I just said that word in the pulpit. And that's what we're talking about. Our world's not afraid to not only talk about sex, but to portray their views on it in everything we see. On commercials, billboards, internet, advertising, on TV shows, movies. Now there are states forcing high school teachers to not only hand out condoms, but to teach students how to put them on. For many, sex is no longer something that is right or wrong. It's simply a way that two people can be together and express themselves. The slogan when I was in high school, does anybody else remember this or was this a Milwaukee thing? On all the city buses, it said, virgin, it's not a dirty word. That was just a Milwaukee thing. All right. Well, that's what it was said. If you drove the county buses on, on, the, on like park benches, it was everywhere. It said virgin, it's not a dirty word. Now the word virgin is not even taught or mentioned. It, you won't even find it on school buses. You won't find it on city buses, I'm sorry. You, won't, you just won't find it because it's kind of like, don't be naive. And so now... It's we need to teach education, protection, safety. Sex apart from marriage is widely accepted in Western society, and frequently it's even tolerated in our nation's churches. And so I still remember one of my first classes in college on today's media. The professor said, the opening line, the professor said, class, let's face it, sex sells. I'm going to read to you a brief account from a Christian counseling book. And listen to this. Pam's wedding was not like she had expected it to be. Even as a young girl, she had dreamed of a church wedding with lots of fresh flowers, bridesmaids, a large number of guests, an impressive ceremony and big reception. Never had she assumed that her marriage ceremony would be brief in a courthouse performed by a judge and with none of her friends present. Never did she expect to be two months pregnant on her wedding day. Pam grew up in a Christian home, attended church regularly, and accepted high moral standards that were taught by her parents. In spite of her own belief and behavior, she had never approved of having sex before marriage. Believe, uh, she believed that it was sinful for unmarried couples to live and sleep together and maintained that sex is created by God for its fullest expression within marriage. When she enrolled as a freshman in a Christian college, her outgoing, vivacious personality made her popular with students of both genders. She never seemed to be lacking in social context, and she often dated. The dates were fun and rarely involved any physical contact. When she and Todd began dating their junior year, they both fell in love, talked about marriage after graduation, and at the beginning, their physical involvements were minimal, but then one thing gave way to another, and they eventually had sex. The guilt was intense, but they determined never to do it again. Todd was unwilling to purchase condoms because he rationalized that if, hey, if we have those, we're going to be tempted to go ahead and do it. But they went ahead anyway, and it was a vicious cycle of, of, of having sex and then guilt and then determination to stop and doing it again. And the pregnancy came a few months after their graduation. Pam and Todd live in a society where non-marital sex is common. Pregnancies are frequent and abortion 
is widely accepted. But Pam and her new husband come from families and churches where premarital sex is considered wrong and abortion is not an option. It never occurred to either of them that abortion would be an alternative. They've decided that marriage and child rearing is the most honorable and biblical way to, to deal with the difficult situation that they find themselves. So they're now married, not really ready to become parents, wondering how they're going to finish college, struggling with shame, guilt, disappointment that, they, that has permanently changed their lives forever. That story is all too familiar in the 21st century. So those are two names, but you can insert other names there. And it happens all the time, unfortunately. Some stats, some stories. According to a nationwide survey uh, done a, num a couple of years ago, the average man sleeps with seven women. That's average. 9% of women say they've had 15 or more partners. 29% of men say they've had 15 or more partners. One article in Sports Illustrated, the Olympics, we just finished the Olympics. These are, these are stats from 2010, so six years ago, but I would, I would venture to say it's probably gotten higher, not lower. The Olympics are a time when athletes have a desire to connect with others. It means a lot more than just conversation. Olympic Village becomes an unreal place where athletes are away from reality and living within a city filled with athletes. Sexually ad sexual advocacy groups deliver 100,000 condoms to Olympic Village. They did for the 2010 Olympics. They ran out and they had to deliver 8,500 more. So, and I'll make this clear because if you're here, even if you're listening online... No matter what your current, your present situation is, we're going to teach and preach the Bible clearly with love, but this is the place you have to be, even if you are living against the principles of the Word of God right now. No one is saying, hey, you've got to leave the church. The best thing is to stay in the church. Let God speak to your heart and, and have your mind and heart be open to what His Word says. So... This is your church. However, it's my duty as a pastor to preach and teach the word of God with, with compassion. And my prayer is that every time I get up to preach, your hearts, minds, and lives will be filled and be open to what God's word has for you. The Bible is very clear in, in, in its teaching regarding marriage and sexual relationships. Numerous passages in both testaments condemn adultery and fornication. Basically, basically, hear me now, the Bible prohibits all extramarital sexual relationships. One of the most notorious one-night stands was between a man named David and a woman named Bathsheba. She was the wife of another man, and David saw her bathing and wanted her for himself. It was something he allowed himself to see, stare at, dwell upon, and he worked to make his fantasy a reality. He had her husband placed in the front line of battle, which was one of his own mighty men, which is really ridiculous on his part, knowing full well that that man, Uriah, was going to be killed. He had to do this because Bathsheba was now pregnant because of her one night stand with David. And when you read through the history of David's family, hear me, his family was torn apart because of this one night of passion. I mean like daughters being raped, murder in family, crazy stuff that resulted as a result of this. When sex deviates from God's perfect plan for human beings, it is destructive. It destroys intimacy and communication. It destroys trust. It is self-centered thinking only about your desires. Sex can be compared to a fire. If I said to you, hey, it's getting cold out, which it's really not. This is hypothetically speaking. And I said, man, we're going to have a fire in the house. I got a fireplace. It's gorgeous. I love it. The crackle of the fire. Come on over. Let's all hang out. We'll just, we'll just chat. And you come, man, that's a beautiful fire. It's warm. It sounds and smells good. But now if I said, hey, come on over. I'm going to light my rug, area rug on fire. And we're all going to sit around it. Brother David's like, sweet, let's see what happens. But, but the rest of us are like, are you nuts? Are you crazy? Like, you don't do that. A fire is beautiful, 
in its proper place. And so, so many marriages struggle today. And that's why I keep the young people up. Because the young people aren't married yet. But they're in a prime place for the world's values to take hold of their lives. And so many marriages struggle today because couples get things out of order. They put the physical union before the lifelong commitment at the altar that clouds vision. The results of a Columbus, Ohio survey indicate that some interesting results. Hear this. Couples who lived together before marriage were less likely to have successful marriages than couples who live apart until their wedding day. Wait, what about giving it a trial run? Not just the physical aspect, but living together and seeing how they sleep and what they look like in the morning. And what their breath really smells like when they don't use Listerine. Wait, I thought that this gives us a chance to get to know one another better before we make the commitment. No studies show that's not the case. The latter group had fewer divorces and were happier and more successful. Biblical writers soundly condemned fornication and adultery because God knew the way he designed for sex and marriage to be. Fornication usually it typically refers to any type of premarital sex. Adultery is sexual relationships with a person other than your spouse. Let me make this clear. Within marriage, sex is a good and godly thing. I, thought, I, I expect at least the men to be like, Amen. In the beginning, God created both male and female, and he's the one who placed the attraction between them. Some traditions in Christendom says they, they teach that somehow sex is degrading or carnal. They regard it as an evil necessary for the propagation of the human race, but it's not supposed to be pleasurable, and holy people aren't supposed to indulge in it. That's not true. The purpose of sexual relationship is for the consummation and strengthening of the union of a man and woman as well as for procreation. Those who forbid marriage are also teaching false doctrine, okay? Hebrews 13.4 summarizes the truth when it says marriage is honorable in all, the bed's undefiled, whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. 1 Corinthians 7.3 New Living says the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. Crystal clear biblical scripture. And if you're uncomfortable tonight, I apologize, but I'm just teaching the word of God. In the proper context of husband and wife, God encourages this. But sex between unmarried people, fornication, or sex between a married person with someone who's not their spouse, which is adultery, is against the word of God. I can't say it any more clearly than that. And later in, our, in, our, in I think, next week's lesson, the Lord says, hey, you've heard it said about adultery, but if you've even looked on a woman to commit, that's adultery too. So what do we put before our eyes? Well, we're going to cover that next week. Tonight, we're just covering the actual act and family and relationships. So the word adultery, in, in, in the New Testament alone, the word fornication occurs 39 times. Interesting note, the Greek word for fornication is pornea. Interesting. Where, what word do you think we get from that? Pornography. It means to act the harlot or indulge in unlawful lust. In every case of the 39 times in the New Testament, this is behavior that's presented as clearly in opposition to the Lord God Almighty. So why do people do that? Because we live in flesh and pump human warm blood, and God placed an attraction between you and the opposite sex. I was in youth ministry, and I've talked to these young guys, and I say, hey, you don't need to act like you're not attracted to women. If, you, if you're not, there's a problem. It's fine to say, that girl looks amazing. That's healthy. But where do I go from there? And so we have to be careful. The word adultery is used two ways in the Bible. One refers to idol worship and unfaithfulness. The other way concerns sexual intercourse by a married person with someone who is other than their mate. 
extramarital sex. Both ways are strictly and consistently condemned throughout the Bible. Adultery and fornication are listed as sins of the flesh. That's why we struggle. That's why we say, God, even though I know that you say this, I like the way it feels, so I'm going to do it anyway. Or I'm going to allow myself to get into a compromising position where I might slip. That's why the Bible steps back, and before it even says that, it says, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So that means single people, young people, married people, someone says, hey, we'll just stop by. We'll take a movie back to my apartment. There should be something inside your soul from the Spirit of God that is going, I'll keep going so it stays in your head. Mayday, mayday, there's a problem here. I'm going into a home. Well, what are we? I'm not 12 anymore. I'm a grown adult. So you think that you're stronger than the desires for sin that, that, that really are, are, are embedded in your humanity? Think about this, folks. I'm not going to make provision for my flesh. There has to be lines in our life, which I'm actually going to teach about with entertainment next week, but that say, hey, if, if you don't know, well, here's where my line is. Well, I'm going to try and figure out what my lines are in a moment of passion when I'm alone with my boyfriend or girlfriend. That's nuts. You better say, hey, no, there's certain things. I don't allow myself to be alone in a private place. If you're asking my suggestion, which you're not, but let's pretend you are. Don't allow yourself to be alone in a private place. Does that mean we can't go out to dinner? Well, my goodness. I was raised, hey, I'll tell you what. I was raised in a strict home. Strict home. And if my sister was here, which she's probably working late, if she was here, she'd be saying, you think you had it strict. She paved the way. She went before me, and she got it way more strict than I did. And she was like the perfect child growing up. So then my dad laid back a little bit thinking that we were both going to be like perfect children. (laughs) And I wasn't. I tended to push the limits and test the envelope and see where the lines were. And so, you know what? But he, he used to say, I couldn't talk to girls on the phone. Till I was like my senior, till I was like 18. So like 16 years old, girl calls the phone. Hey, can I talk to Gary? Gary doesn't talk to girls. I'm standing in their background being like, for the love of God, I talk, I actually, I love to talk to girls. <laughs> and he'd hang up and he'd say, why that girl calling? I'm like, I don't know. And I'm like, I would like to think she was calling to talk to me, but you just ruined it for the rest of my life. (laughs) So, Gary doesn't talk to girls. Like, I had it hard, okay? But, what am I saying to you today, to the younger generation? Am I saying, hey, don't go out to dinner? No, you can go out to dinner. You're in a public place. But the minute that that dinner says, hey, I'm going to go over here. Let's shift into something else. Do you want to go up to my place for a while? These things should be, hey, do you want to just go park and talk at a car? Or do you want to go park the car and talk at a park? There should be something in you saying, I don't, I don't know if this is wise. I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is wise. And really, it goes back to the whole maybe cliche, funny thing, but like would you, if you were parked in a car in a dark place chatting with your boyfriend or girlfriend, would you be cool with Jesus just walking up and knocking on the window? Or would you be cool if I was? <laughs> maybe Jesus, you can visualize. Visualize me. I'll break the window. 
and pay the cost later. That goes not just for the young people. Any one of y'all I see without somebody that's not your spouse, I'll break your window, okay? You hear me? And you do the same to me. We set safeguards. And we say, well, this would never happen to me. I'm married. Yeah, so was David. So was Solomon. Samson, the strongest man. That's, you've heard me say this. The minute you start saying, well, that would never happen to me. Really? So you're saying that you're like a, a, a greater man than David, and you're stronger than Samson and wiser than Solomon? Wow, props to you. No, it's about saying I'm putting safeguards in my life that says I'm not allowing this. Because the minute you allow it, I'm reminded one t- of a story I heard about a polar bear that, that a child fell in. The polar bear mauled the child. And after that point, every time a human being at the zoo would come and look, the polar bear just attack the glass, just go crazy. It's because it had tasted blood. So it was never the same after that. They had to put the polar bear down. When you give your humanity certain things that it's not supposed to have unless it's in the context of God's plan, you allow yourself to taste blood that you shouldn't be tasting. And it's a very difficult thing then to say, I'm content to live without these things. The minute you open the door as a single person to sexual relationship, the minute you open the door as a married person to the rush of someone texting you and wanting to get together sometime and, and oh, you're on a business trip and I, I'd love to just say hi, just grab a cup of coffee with you. The minute that you allow these little things into your life, you set the stage for long-time failure. It's, it's amazing. It's like God knew what he was talking about. See, adultery and fornication are listed, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate abusers of themselves with mankind. And it lists everything out, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you're washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and, and, and by the Spirit of God. So, yes, if you have lived this way before... You can sit here and say, not to say, my goodness, I'm horrible, I'm terrible, but to say, hey, you know what? I'm putting it under the blood, and God brought me through something that if I could do it over, I'd love to change it. But thank God for his grace. But if you're here tonight and you're engaging in this stuff, I do pray that the convicting power of the Holy Ghost will come into your life. Why? Because God has a plan that's greater than this. It's not that he denies you pleasure. It's that he has something better that doesn't come with guilt, condemnation, and a terrible life change. When someone commits fornication with another person or has sex outside of marriage, those two people are now joined together as one flesh, a result God intended only for a lifelong marriage relationship. And I forgot the study. I wish I would have asked you for it. The study that there was actually a study that shows when a woman has sex with a man that there's actually a part of her brain that changes, that actually shifts that it becomes embedded in who she is, the emotional ties of who she is as a person. So before you just say it's not that big of a deal, you are literally changing the way you think, process your life. It's not something to be messed with. It's clear that God's view of sex is very different than the movies and the top billboards, top 100 and cable television and all that. I mean, you listen to the top, 100 songs or whatever. When I looked on the music lesson, I didn't even listen to the song. I just read the title of the song, and I was like, what in the world? He doesn't take, God doesn't take light sexual intimacy. He doesn't. So how do we approach dating? If God is this passionate about a physical relationship outside of marriage, the question is then raised about how do we go about dating and who we should date. Obviously, as a pastor in the church, I don't feel like I have control over you to tell you who to marry or not to marry. Sometimes I wish I did because I've seen some people walk away from God as a result. But it's your choice. But I will say that I feel like I need to offer you what scriptures say about dating, sharing principles, principles for life. 
Second Corinthians 6, 14 through 17. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? It's Paul writing to the church in Corinth. His second letter, he says, What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? You're the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell with them and walk with them. I will be my, their God. They shall be my people. So come out from among them. Be separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. So what is he saying here? He's saying that we are not to be unequally yoked. History lesson. Everybody in that Corinthian church knew what Paul was talking about because even in the law of Moses, you couldn't, you couldn't plow with an ox and an ass back together. They had to be separate. They had to be the same. The, and, and so there were all these laws. And so they understood farming and agriculture. And here's Paul saying, hey, you can't be yoked with an unbeliever. That is like... Bring my beautiful wife up here. I don't ever use you as an example. She said last time I did, I hit her in the face. I'm going to preach a message on forgiveness later. So, so what does this say? So we're the two oxen. I hope you'll forgive me for that. So, so we're the two oxen. And he says, don't be unequally yoked. A yoke is something that went over the two necks of the oxen. So when he's talking, Paul's clearly talking about relationships here. Maybe not even just romantic, but just he's talking about relationships. Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. You know what's amazing is you would think, hey, an ox could do this much work, but you, when you team it together, they could do double the amount of work. Do you know that it's like, five times the amount of work. It's, it's an incredible number that when they're teamed together going the right direction, the same direction, they can do more work. So he's saying, don't be unequally yoked. So if I see a beautiful woman, which I do, and she was not serving God and she was not in church, and I team up with her because you know what? I just think she's, she's gorgeous and I just want to pursue that relationship. I don't care what God says. I just want to pursue that relationship. You would think people don't say that, but it's sickening. How many times people have said that already in my short, short time in ministry? So you team up with that person, and the problem is you start saying, well, hey. And some people have good intentions. They go, you know what, though? If I can just get them exposed, we will love each other, have kids together, and eventually they'll come to church. If you're here tonight and you married someone that was not a believer and didn't hold to the same things you did and you're both in church, praise God, you are one of the minority. You made it, but you're not the norm. Because what happens is you yoke up, and the problem is, is if she starts wanting to go that way, and I'm wanting to go this way, one person's going to influence the other. And what do you think comes naturally? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in this example, I'm going to lay the law down. But, in, but what happens is, what comes naturally to you, your humanity, walking after the flesh or walking after the spirit? Flesh. That's why he says, I die daily. I crucify the flesh. I make no provision for the flesh. Because the flesh is really strong, and it gets really strong really fast. So, if you are trying to influence this person that you're attracted to, and they're trying to walk after the flesh, and you're trying to walk after the spirit, nine times out of ten, you end up going the flesh way because you are already made of flesh. Then you got someone else that you're really attracted to, love and care about, and then they become the father or mother of your children. So then you got that in there, and you're just wanting to keep peace in the home. And so we're just going to, fine, we're just going to walk this way. Very rarely, very rarely do you see the person say, you know what, wow, I love, oh, this is incredible, this is awesome, I, I love serving God, this is, I'm going to come around to your church now. And again, if it's worked out, praise God, that is awesome. But rarely do you see it work. And this passage, it's important because I don't want to be yoked to someone that's not going the same direction that I am. And I'll tell you even one thing for the young people or for the people who are unmarried or single that 
if you are yoking up with somebody who will say, you know what? They, they believe in, in spirit fill, in filling. They believe in water baptism in Jesus' name. And, and they believe these things. But I'll take it even a step further and throw an extra curveball at you. If you are passionate about ministry, if you say, I feel I got a call of God in my life. God wants to use me. I felt the call at this age. I'm walking with God. Don't just settle for someone who's just followed the plan of salvation. If you have a call of God on your life and someone else says, well, I believe God, but I don't really feel like doing anything with it, don't settle. God's going to team you up with someone that's going in the exact same direction that you are. And I hope that's okay. If not, you can come to me in private later and we'll talk about it. But. When it comes to getting in a relationship with someone, that person should obey all of God's word, must have signs that follow a believer. Can a Christian marry an unbeliever? Now, I will say this. If you've married someone and you don't feel like they're, going to, they're not on board with you, do not say, Pastor said, we're done. We're, 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 we're getting divorced. No, 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 no. That is a lifelong commitment, which I'm going to get to here. So I just had to clarify that in case you leave and try to light a fire under your spouse to say, get with the program. Uh, you got to dot your I's and cross your T's when you're speaking in a public setting, especially with a podcast. We welcome our podcast listeners. But um, some argue that marrying an unbeliever is a great way to win that person to the Lord. That argument ignores the written word of God. We can't lower our standards or disobey the word of God and expect great results. Um, if the unbeliever is sincerely interested in the word of God, he or she will become a believer before the marriage and even before the dating. Because you know what? If you say, we're just dating, but I'm not planning on marrying them. I'm waiting to see if they come around. You're playing fire with your emotions. Like, I'm going to let myself really engage with this person and really fall in love with this person. Love their smile and their talking and their appearance and the places we go and the fun memories we have. But when it comes time, I'm ready to cut it off if they don't make a stand. Please. Don't insult my intelligence. We date with the intent of marriage. If there is not a possibility of marriage at the outset, don't even date. Now, am I saying that you have to go on the first date and say, hey, let's talk marriage? <laughs> don't do that either. But if you walk in and say, man, that person's not marriage material. They're not even serving God. They're not living for God. Their teeth are disgusting. Their breath stinks. You're not, you're not going to go on a date with them, okay? So it needs to be the same thing. If you're like, hey, this person's heathen. This person is not interested in God at all. I'm not going to go on a date and say, well, we'll see if they come along to Jesus. No, don't date. And sometimes when young people are in smaller churches and smaller settings, why well, they, they get in a rush because there's just not a lot of choices. There's not a lot of fish in the sea, so I got to go find someone. So basically you're saying, God, I just can't trust you to bring me the right person. Come on. Come on. Listen, my last semester at Bible college was her first semester. We crossed in the nick of time. So God can do it. <laughs> Nick of time. Matter of fact, guy at the school pounded, came through our door in our dorm room. Me and my two roommates were in there. And he's like, I just met my future wife. And we're like, I was like, okay, what, what's her name? He's like, I don't know yet. I was like, y'all knucklehead, man. These new people come in and they think they look good. And then they're going to meet their future wife. I'm like, you ain't even had a conversation yet. You are crazy. Well, then I went to dinner that night after he told me that, in long story short, I'm standing in a dinner line, look back, I was like, my goodness, this girl is gorgeous. Come to find out, he met my future wife. <laughs> We're still friends, too. We're still friends. So... Why are we have to be careful with this? Because I wish I could stand here and say, oh, I've seen it happen a handful of times. I was in youth ministry for like nine years in Wisconsin. I've been pastoring here for like seven and a half years. And I can tell you that you ready for this? Here's the meme, Pastor Chad. 
This, there's a meme that went around when I preached somewhere one time, and it circulates, and it's kind of funny because it comes up at different times with me preaching in different places that I didn't even say this. But relationships, bad relationships, will mess up your life faster than drugs and alcohol. You think, man, oh, man, marijuana, cocaine, addiction, prescription medicine, that's terrible stuff. Drugs and literally bad relationships will mess someone up faster. And you know what, too? Especially when you add the sexual element. Because when you have sex with someone, there is a physical transformation even in your brain with the chemicals that are released that give you actually a high in your body. To the point where, hey, yes, it's not just a bad decision or a moment of passion. There's actually something that's taking place up here that it becomes like a drug. So why, so man, God sounds like he's smart to stay away from it until you have a lifelong commitment. He's made us to be attracted. And believe it or not, Romans 13, 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make not provision for the flesh. I've already quoted that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, I've already referenced that. Take heed lest you fall. So that means what? I'm going to set up safeguards. That means even me, who I, I think my wife is the most attractive woman on the face of planet Earth. And I'm madly in love with her. I still am not going to go out and have coffee with women and counsel women alone in the church and do this stuff. Sister Waller's my witness. I meet with somebody, Sister Waller, and I need you to be here in the building at this time. I'm not even attracted to the person. That's all right. I'm going to set up safeguards no matter who I'm meeting with. Why? Because I'm also not going to let my good be evil spoken of. But I'm also not going to make provision for my flesh. I'm not going to say, well, oh, I would never. Listen, like I said, given enough time away from church, prayer, Bible reading, seeking God's face, your flesh will do anything. And check it out, 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee also youthful lust, Paul writes to Timothy. But follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that are called on, the, uh, called on the Lord out of a pure heart. Paul did not tell Timothy, you need to pray, Timothy. You need to fast, Timothy. You need to stand strong, Timothy. And these are things that he has said in other parts of the Bible. He says, put on the whole armor of God and stand. Pray. He says, you just need to fast. Seek the face of God. Do these things. But here he says to Timothy, hey, when it comes to youthful lust, run. Run. There's certain things it's time to stand and pray and fast. There's other times that the way we are designed, we are not meant to stop and stay and play with the fire on the carpet. We are, need to get ourselves up and we need to run to get out of that situation. Aside from spiritual and eternal consequences, the effects of sex outside of marriage reach beyond these things. It's, there's emotional effects, interpersonal effects, spiritual effects, physical effects that I've already referenced. You know what is the heart of God's wonderful message, though? Forgiveness. No matter your sin, it's up to you whether or not you repent. Whether or not you say, you know what, though? I'm really enjoying this. Or whether or not you say, you know what? I haven't done this, and I, it's, it's a great great feeling. It's a great feeling when you stand at an altar and you say, do you take lawfully take this man to be your husband? Do you women take this woman to be your wife? Whatever. And, and you say these things and you say, I do, and I do, and I will. And you may claim your bride with a kiss. And you know that, hey, I have something so special to offer you. I have never been with anyone else. And too few of people today are able to say that. Why do I include this in discipleship? Because it's one of the greatest issues that's currently tearing the church of the living God apart. We're compromising our belief system to enjoy nights of moments of passion because we want a connection and a relationship. We're willing to settle for someone that doesn't believe in God in the same experience you do. And because of those decisions, children are being born and raised in a family structure that God didn't create. Men and women, dad and mom alike, need to play a role in a child's life. 
Now, if you're a single mother, single father, I, I understand, you know, that there's situ situations sometimes beyond our control. God gives grace. He gives strength. Absolutely. And I, and I applaud you for being in church and doing what you're doing. But God's design was to say that a man and a woman, a father and a mother, were both going to instill something vital in that child. Both men and women should be aiming to follow the word of God when it comes to our roles as being a husband, a wife, a mom, a dad. And we're ending our session by looking at these few quick things. God really ordained the relationship as a type and shadow of his relationship. We're called the bride of Christ. He's the bridegroom. The role of the husband, God created the man first and made him stronger, uh, made him the stronger of male and female. Yet God commanded that man should honor the wife as she subjects herself to him. Let's look at scripture. First Peter chapter 3, verse 5. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to, unto their own husbands. Notice it doesn't say all men are, so all women are subject to all men. This is not a gender thing. It says that she's subject to her own husband. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers should not be hindered. There's a mouthful there that I could teach a whole massive lesson on, but I'm going to just say a couple of quick things. The word honor in this instance means value and esteem. So we are called, so, so women uh, are called to, to, to be subject to their husbands, and then we are to give honor to the wife. We are to value our wives, to esteem them. Also, he is to realize that he and his wife are joint heirs, not meaning like, hey, I paved the way for us, baby. No, we are joint heirs to the promise. In other words, his leadership role in the family does not give him an edge over her concerning their relationship with God. Marriages would be so much better if both partners understood that God considers it a team effort. So and when it says weaker, it's, it, it, it's not a place of, uh, I'm sorry, when it says, um, what was I just going to say? Where was that? So, so anyway, so... Um, Lastly, for his prayers not to be hindered, he must honor his wife. The word hindered here means detained. In other words, if his prayers are to be answered in a timely manner. If you're a husband and you're saying, man, I just feel like God never hears my prayers. I feel like God never answers me. Based on this scripture alone, I think we need to stop, pause, and say, how am I treating my wife? Scripturally. And being heirs together, that your prayers may not be hindered. This is talking all about the marital relationship, and all of a sudden it brings in unanswered prayers. Whoa! So God hearing me has a lot, something to do with the way that I treat my wife? Yeah, it's a type and shadow of his relationship to the church, absolutely. So when you just want to say, woman, I'm stronger, and you need to subject, you need to submit to me. Remember what the Bible says? You just better remember the whole rest of the context of all this. Because how I treat her is going to hinder or unhinder my prayers, and I'm also called to love her as Christ loved the church. That's the most sacrificial, perfect love there ever was in the history of the world. I feel like I'm up against an impossibility. I'm never going to be able to love my, my wife like Christ loved the church, so I have a pretty high standard to shoot for. Marriage is a lifetime relationship. Ecclesiastes 9, 9. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the, all the days of thy life, of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity, for that is the portion in this life, and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. And it's important. All the days of my life, that when I make that pledge, that commitment before God and humankind, and I take on, the, and we exchange vows, this is a lifelong commitment that I'm saying, I will love you, you will love me, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness, for health, as long as we both shall live. Those aren't just words. It's a covenant. And it's important we get this because I received, just before I came to church, moments before I left, I got a push notification. Anyone get push notifications from KCTV5? No? 
Did you get the one that said, 70-year-old man accused of robbing a bank says he would rather live in prison than with his wife? I'm like, this is the world that we're living in, that somehow it's gotten that bad. Someone missed God's plan for marriage. The wife was created. This is what I started to say, and I lost my train of thought. The wife was created as the weaker vessel. This does not mean, hear me, this does not mean that she is less significant because significance is not found in strength. It simply means that in the plan of God, he created her as a weaker vessel to be loved, protected, provided for, and led by her husband. Now, I understand women's liberation movement says that's not the case, and they want to paint men as dumb creatures who just want sex. Watch commercials. Sitcoms, commercials, try to paint it that women are strong and intelligent, and men just want, we're just dumb Neanderthals that just, I just want sex, I just want sex. Like, that's how they paint us. And listen, we're both intelligent, divinely created beings, but women are biblically the weaker sex. Does not mean significance. Strength isn't, uh, significance is not found in strength. But see, women's lib, they'll want to paint a picture that you are in bondage if you honor and respect your husband and you can be freed from that terrible way of life. Well, guess what? As the women's lib movement has grown, do you know that divorce rates went up along with it? It's because God gives some very simple verses in his word. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit your husbands. Submit yourselves unto your husbands. Submit. (laughs) My Lord Jesus, that was the worst Freudian slip I've ever had in seven and a half years of pastoring. That, was, that, that verse was taken from Jacqueline, chapter 5, verse 4. No. Oh, my goodness. Where do you even go after that? Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Notice it does not say out of all men. People want to say that. Men are the higher vessels. Women are. It says submit yourselves to your own husbands. Nowhere does it say you need to submit to all men. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Women say, that's not fair, that's so horrible, I can't even believe it, men get this and they get that, and we have it so hard. Verse 25 is what I already referenced. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself. You think that you have it hard to submit yourselves to, to a man? We are called to love you like he loved the church. That is perfect love. And we already know love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious, keeps no record of wrong. Like, we got this massive list to be like, oh, great. And lastly, the last couple minutes, the role of parents. The responsibility of being a parent is not a light one. I always say this, and you've heard me say it. When God gave you a human soul to instruct, raise, discipline, teach, and train, that is the greatest vote of confidence that God's ever given you in your life. You will never step into a ministry in any way, shape, or form anywhere in the world that's greater than being a mommy or daddy. It's the greatest thing in the world. And it's God's greatest vote of confidence in us that he said, I'm going to create this soul and I'm going to let you impact this soul. I'm going to let you mold this soul and shape this soul. Lo, children are heritage heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. And you'll see, I'm not going to read all the passages. They're in your handout. The six main duties of a parent, teaching, training, providing, nurturing, controlling, and loving. But as I close, children, as fathers and mothers begin families and children are born, there are certain responsibilities placed upon the children in the Word of God. It's good for the parents to hear these and understand that they err in a great way when they choose to not make their children's honor these responsibilities. So there's a blessing for your children by following this. If you don't help make them follow this, you are robbing them of blessings. 
Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, thou mayest live long on the earth. I want my kids to have it well with them and live long on this earth. So I'm going to instruct them and do whatever it takes for them to honor me and to obey me. The first commandment with promise was to the children. It was a commandment that was being obedient to the parents. The word obey means to heed or conform. Honor means to prize or value. The commandment comes with a twofold promise. Thou mayest be, be well with thee and mayest live long on the earth. You do your child no favors when you don't enforce obedience in the home. You do your child no favors when you don't enforce obedience in the church. You do your child no favors when you don't enforce obedience in school or in wherever they are. We are called. Scripturally, I didn't read all the scriptures. They're in your handout. We are biblically called to control, teach, train, love, nurture, provide for our children. Do you know with all, no, no disrespect to teenagers because I was there too. It's very difficult for a teenager because they right now as teenagers feel like they are seriously probably the smartest people in the room. Um, and I was there. But do you know that a teenager's brain is not even fully developed? And so as a parent, you're feeling this, this internal struggle of wanting to be their friend and wanting to have them f have freedom and this thing and, and so on. And you get the, nah, nah, I hate you. I'm not going to do this, blah, blah, whatever. That, and instead of screaming at them, you got to understand their brain is not even fully developed yet. So you got to step in and say, I love you enough that I'm not going to let this happen. That made me, when my dad was calm, that got me angrier than when he was excited. I'm like, this obviously doesn't mean something to you like it means to me. I never did say I hate you. If I did, whoa, that wouldn't have been allowed in my house. We will actually bring blessing in the lives of our children by enforcing obedience. And that's a whole other parenting lesson. If you've never read, read some incredible books, okay? Read um, strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. If you have a little baby girl, read Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters by Meg Meeker. Read uh, Bringing Up Boys by Dr. Dobson. Read Strong-Willed Children. Read Educate. Why? 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 You've heard me say it. Strong churches are built on strong families. If we don't have strong families, our church is not strong. Why do we educate ourselves? about everything under the sun, how to get certified in this, and computers, and shooting, and golfing, and, and, and nursing, and, and, and all these different things that we have to do for certifications, and to move up in employment, and to finish degree programs, and do all this, and we don't educate ourselves about being a parent. It's the greatest thing you're going to do on this earth. Read. Listen to podcasts. Listen to well-respected people and say, okay, I'm going to dive into this book. And like I said, if you don't know, I have a list of books I can give you to get, even specially just geared at boys or girls. Because you know what? We can't, that boys, even, the, and even, even books that talk about anger. I know my positional authority as a father. Sometimes I lose my temper, but you don't see a police officer jumping up and down outside of the car saying, you were speeding. <laughs> stop. When are you going to stop speeding? <laughs> officer just walks up with cool confidence, license and registration. And most people are just shuddering in their boots. Because of the respect for, I understand who this person is. Do you know how fast you're going? Oh, yeah. As a dad, I just need to walk into a room. The kids were misbehaving tonight. I walked out, and I stood there, and I just tell you about my good stuff. I stood there, and I looked at him, and Jude goes, what? What, Dad? What? And he does his nervous smile. Huh? What, Dad? What? I walk into here. I look. She goes, what? What, what did I do? She's not as scared as Jude, but she's still a little bit. And it's not because I come in there and beat them. I've never hit my kids when I was angry. And I learned that from my dad. My dad wasn't perfect, but it was always wait in the other room. I'm getting a spanking. 
Do you understand why I'm giving this? I love you, but here's what you did wrong. And it was always explained, which is the way it should be. But where are the parents? This, oh, honey, please, baby, will you please come, come here to daddy. Just oh, come, come here to dad. <laughs> Say what? There has to be speaking one time, and if they don't listen, there's a consequence. The only time you spank is not because I'm angry, you don't take me off, No. I spank for direct defiance. I don't spank for a mistake. If a child, if I say, do not go there, do not take another step, you come here right now. And they choose to take another, that directly defied what I just told you to do, so you're getting a spanking. And it happens instantly. And I don't say, one, I hope I'm not stepping on toes. I don't say, one, two, so all I'm doing now is teaching the kids that I got three more seconds before I have to obey. <laughs> no, no, no. I said to come here right now. Get over here. I don't need to raise my voice. Think of the police officer. Get over here right now. That's it. You don't listen. It's spanky time. And I don't spank in front of people. That's embarrassing. I will take them out. I will take them somewhere else. Pray to God in a public place. They don't go, don't give me a And if you're here and you've been reading too many books that are outside the Word of God, when I say read books, make sure that they're biblical, biblically-based authors for certain things here. Because scripturally, Psalm, uh, or Proverbs 13, 24, those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. My, my, my. My dad used to, and i got to wrap up. My dad used to say, you're going to thank me for this one day. That's the last thing a child wants to hear when they're over your knee. And I had that paddle. It was about this big. It said, never spank a child in the face. Nature provides a better place. It had a boy in a blue and a, boy and a girl in a pink bent over a fence. And it said, Wisconsin Dells. I saw that thing a time or two. <laughs> but those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. I just don't really want to spank my kids. Welcome to the club. I don't enjoy it either. But if I spare the rod of discipline, I hate my child. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. This is the Bible, folks. Proverbs 23, 13, and 14. Don't fail to discipline your children. They won't die if you spank them. Oh, my goodness. It's biblical. There's a way to do it, like I said. Don't be... Don't don't be a wimp and hit people out of anger. Do it in love. And if, you're, if our kids, they get us angry, don't ever hit them in anger. If you need to excuse yourself, go into the other room. I've made the mistake. I've gotten angry at my kids. I've raised my voice. I've apologized to them at night. And I said, Daddy got very angry, and I'm very sorry. I'm willing to admit that. I've never hit them when I was angry. But even raising your voice, that's, that's foolish. There's no need for me to do that. I am not out to try and scare my kids with the, the, the decibel level that I shout at them. Have control. Know who you are. I'm the parent. Whether you're 3, 13, 23, I'm still the parent. Now, I can't really discipline you at 23, but. They won't die if you spank them. Physical discipline may well save them from death. Parents, moms, dads, you have a critical role in this child's life. Don't get weak. Love with a firm hand. And tonight when you say, let's do this, we don't have to say, please, please, please listen. <laughs> Just make sure you know who you are. It's God's plan. Let's stand to our feet. Jesus, we love you. God, there's just a lot of meat here tonight, a lot of different things to cover. And, Lord, but this is so important. It's such a crucial lesson because it's, it's your design for the church. Churches are built on families. They're built on strong family units. And, 
And Lord God, I pray that, Lord, I know that there are people who, here who are, who are single, Lord God. Help them to have direction of wisdom, Lord Jesus, when it comes time to date and choose a partner, Lord. And God, I just pray for people who are single mothers or fathers. Give them the strength, Lord Jesus. They're doing the very best that they can, Father, to, to instill things in their children, Lord God. Help them to just walk with them, Lord, I pray. And in Jesus, I pray for every mother, every father, Lord God, and every marriage, Jesus, that, that you would strengthen the marriages of Refuge Church, that you would strengthen the parenting skills and approaches, Lord, because we need wisdom, Father. Lord Jesus, every parent has experienced a, a day where we are short on patience, Lord, where we don't know how to handle a situation, Lord. We need wisdom from on high, I pray. Help every single mother and every single father, Lord Jesus, to have strength, Lord, and to have to seek you, Lord, and where their kids grow up in a home where they see mommy and daddy loving you and loving each other, Lord God, and, and that we would pattern healthy relationships in front of our children so then they, in turn, will look for healthy relationships, Jesus. And, Lord God, I just pray, give us that wisdom, that strength, that help, Lord. And, and Father, if anybody is struggling in a relationship right now, Lord Jesus, where someone is not loving and serving you, Lord, I pray help something to shift in their heart where they say, you know what, God, I love you more than anything I'm a part of right now, that there would be a restoration, Lord, of, of passion and commitment to you, not to someone else, Lord Jesus. Father, because ultimately we're in this to try and make heaven our home and be, Lord Jesus, in your presence for eternity, God. Help us to not allow any relationship to come above yours and our relationship. Jesus, we pray these things in your wonderful matchless name, in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen.